You're listening to TIP. This was like the standout quote for me of the entire conference. I tweeted it out. He said, the technology of Bitcoin allows you to build a system peer-to-peer that doesn't require debt for velocity of money. And he followed it up by saying, "Like this is the most important part of Bitcoin. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Why do we have a credit-based system at the base layer of money? It's because of the limitations on velocity. Bitcoin brings back hardness and enables velocity. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dan and Josh from the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Dan and Josh are career firefighters and paramedics and lifelong students of economics, finance, and philosophy. They discovered Bitcoin in 2017 and have been more captivated with each passing year. In 2021, they decided to take their conversations from the firehouse to the internet with the launch of their podcast. During the episode, Dan, Josh, and I cover our general thoughts on the Bitcoin conference held in Miami, our takeaways from the billionaire capital allocators discussion at the conference, how Samson Mao is playing such a huge role in the Bitcoin space, what Kathy Wood, Michael Saylor, and Peter Thiel spoke about at the conference, how Jack Mallers is totally disrupting the payments industry, how the Lightning Network actually works, and much more. I had a blast down at the conference in Miami, so I thought it would be fun to get together with Dan and Josh to record an episode on some of our takeaways from the conference. With that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dan and Josh from the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Josh and Dan from the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Clay, thanks for having us. We're looking forward to being here with you. Delighted. Thanks for having us. Now, like I mentioned in this intro, on today's episode, we're going to be chatting about the Bitcoin conference Josh and I have recently attended in Miami and just chat about some of our biggest takeaways from the event. I had many people ask me, is this a work event? Is it all fun? Is it a suit and tie deal? And my answer to that is... I went primarily just to network and connect with others. I got to connect with many people I already knew from TIP, like Preston and Trey. And I also had the opportunity to meet some of the guests I've had on the show, which includes Andy Edstrom, Dylan LeClaire, and Jim Kreider. And not only that, I had the chance to meet a lot of new people in the space who I hadn't met before, like Josh. And it's just really cool to be able to connect with all these like-minded people who you know are just so smart and have done so much research on this topic and just bring this whole new perspective and their own you know life experiences. And it's just really cool to be down there and meet all these people in person. And for those who aren't familiar, the Bitcoin conference was held in Miami Beach at this massive convention center down there on Thursday and Friday. There were speakers all day on the main stage, and there were speakers on a number of other smaller stages as well. Then there were just like hundreds of booths set up with all these companies in the space there. So you could go and chat with them and find out more about their products and services. And it was just also a really good opportunity if anyone wants to get a job in the space. You know, a lot of times the hiring manager will be there directly. And, you know, a lot of times, like for example, a software engineer, those are pretty well in a shortage today that I'm aware of. So it's a great opportunity to get a job in the space if any of the listeners are interested in that. I had such a good time at the event. And admittedly, I already purchased my ticket for next year, even though we don't even know where the conference is going to be at. So what are your guys' initial takeaways on the event? 
Oh, uh, well, I can confirm that it was definitely not a suit and tie event. You could get away with, you get away with a t-shirt and shorts there all day. Yeah. As long as you've got a Bitcoin tattoo somewhere, I mean, you'd be left alone. Very lax, very cool environment. You get to meet a lot of people just walking the halls. You see people you recognize from the industry, which is really cool. They get their own like mini celebrity week, which I think they semi enjoy and are probably annoyed with, but it was a really cool, really fun event to partake in. And I'm definitely buying a ticket for next year as well. And I think Dan may have already done so. Yeah, I wasn't there, folks. One of the most bittersweet weeks of my life. I had my second child. Fortunately, he and mom are healthy, but the FOMO was just out of control. I mean, I felt like a dog stuck in a cage staring at a bone covered in peanut butter. I mean, it was just insanely hard to not be there. I mean, I'm incredibly blessed for what happened, but seemed like a pretty incredible week. And I mean, outside of just the networking and fun, as I know we'll get into in this episode, a lot of substance, very exciting time to be a Bitcoiner for a plethora of different reasons. So I was able to tune into a lot of the conference while holding a week old, but man, was it tough to miss out. The cool thing, I think what I enjoyed most about it was meeting some people, Clay included, who, you know, and I didn't know anybody when I showed up really. I met, I knew Jim Kreider just from our talk on our show a couple months ago. Clay, I knew, you know, a bit, but never met them in person. We all went out to eat the first night and it was just a cool atmosphere to meet some new people. And besides those guys, met three or four other guys we hung out with the next night, which was, it was just a joy. It was fun to hang out with all these good people, just genuinely positive people there. And the atmosphere reflected that. Yeah, Dan, congratulations on the newborn. That's uh, you know, a good excuse to not go to the conference. Thanks. Josh actually gave me an open dime. If anyone's not in Bitcoin, it's a Bitcoin hardware device with a transaction from his date of birth. So it's a cool gift from a great friend and podcast partner. And uh, my guess, oh. if uh, Price does anything like we expect, whatever amount of money on there is going to be pretty exciting when he uh, gets old enough to know what's going on with that thing. I love it. Well, let's dive in to talk about some of the speakers. One of the first events on the main stage was it was a talk called Billionaire Capital Allocators. It was led by Greg Foss and Ricardo Salinas was on the stage as well as a few other capital allocators. And I thought this one was a really interesting panel. Ricardo Salinas is the third richest man in Mexico. And some of the others on the stage manage large funds. Foss definitely did not pass up the opportunity to be the center of the stage as he was fired up, as I'm sure you guys loved. Ricardo (laughs) did. He didn't even sit down. Like He sat all these guys down and then just paraded around hogging the mic the whole time, which was hilarious. Yeah, he definitely took advantage of the opportunity. And Ricardo is the guy that really fascinated me on the panel. He's worth well over $10 billion. He's lived through hyperinflation in Mexico. And he stated on the stage that 60% of his liquid net worth is in Bitcoin. You know, think about that. In listening to this talk, one item that stuck out to me was Dan Tapiero talking about the traditional 60-40 stock bond portfolio. He mentioned that holding that portfolio has worked since 1981 as interest rates since then have gone straight down. As many people in finance know, this pushes up the prices of both equities and bonds. Now, today, you know, we're running into some issues. We have $200 trillion sitting in the bond market and all of it is negative yielding after you account for inflation. So if the bond yields 2% and the CPI inflation is 8% and Many of us know that CPI inflation might be not quite telling the truth. And if CPI inflation is 8%, then you have at least a negative 6% yield on your money. So logically, he comes to the conclusion that money is going to have to flow out of bonds into other asset classes. And obviously, Bitcoin is one of them, is what he believes. And he walks through, well, 
If you have $200 trillion in bonds and any fraction of that flows into Bitcoin, Bitcoin is just under $1 trillion. So it becomes pretty obvious that Bitcoin is a very big asymmetric opportunity just through that one lens. So everything you just said is obviously these are themes we hit all the time on our show. I think the question you have to ask when you sort of unpack this reality Right. And the reality is just a a totally artificial cost of capital that's being accentuated and magnified by CPI prints that are honestly mind blowing. I mean, I heard, I forget what show she was on, but Lynn Alden saying, like, I knew inflation was coming. Prints like this are surprising. We obviously have ancillary factors like war and whatnot, but we do have to play out the scenario of what if these perpetuate at the numbers they are? What if they do come back? A little bit, but you know they're three, four, five percent. They're not two percent. The entire stack of the way capital is allocated is impacted, as you've just referenced, right? So inflation is impacting real yields, which is then impacting the risk-free rates, fixed income, and then on top of that, equity. The whole stack is compromised when these numbers are skewed in a way they haven't been in quite some time, right? Huge systemic event. And when you unpack that reality, you then have to ask, okay, so who's affected as career firefighter paramedics expecting a pension and being around a cohort of people that are expecting a pension, people that are exposed to large amounts of money denominated explicitly in the fiat currency are going to be the bag holders. And this is something that Ricardo referenced specifically. He mentioned the word pension several times in warning, honestly, average folks. It's like he wasn't speaking to other hedge fund managers and billionaires. He was talking to the average person saying, hey, it's the vulnerable that are potentially affected by this, right? The elderly, the lower class, the middle class that's reliant on pensions and other defined benefit plans, things like that. So that's something we're extremely passionate about is just, first of all, your personal portfolio, getting away from fixed income allocations, and then secondarily, hedging risk in systemic debasement in things like pensions, which we're quote unquote reliant on. You know, a couple other things that he said that really stuck out to me was, this is a guy who's a Mexican billionaire worth, like you said, Clay, $10 billion. He referred to fiat as a fraud multiple times. And that's something that, you know, you expect some plebe on Twitter to say, having no skin (laughs) in the game and it's passable. Anyone just like whatever, some guy you don't know. But when people at this level are calling this a fraud and a Ponzi, and then he talked about how initially when he was working in Mexico, his first job, he was making $2,000 a month. He said because of the hyperinflation, that was equivalent to $20 a month just a few years later. Like This guy has lived through massive hyperinflation. That's an order of magnitude less money in a couple of years. And he said that Mexico back in those times was dependent on the US dollar. Everyone would just simply use dollars. Well, what we're looking at now is a collapse of potentially the US dollar in the end here. And so there really is nothing else underpinning any of this. It's going to be a very different situation than Mexico's hyperinflation or Venezuela's hyperinflation. This is potentially hyperinflation of all fiats in tandem around the world. This is an entirely different animal. And it's scary stuff when people of this caliber are ringing alarm bells to this degree. The other comment I got to throw in here is... He did repeat this phrase, the fiat fraud, a number of times. So that's one of the themes he explored. Then another theme that he explored was he was very clear that he's Bitcoin focused. He did spend some time up front railing on altcoins and the use case for altcoins. And those two themes are connected because in order to thwart the fiat fraud, as he calls it, you're going to need a decentralized mint. You're going to need immutable monetary policy by way of decentralization. And that's why a good first principles critical thinker, which he appears to be on first glance, recognizes any protocol that's not accomplishing that decentralized immutable mint is not solving the fiat fraud. It was kind of interesting to see those two things marry because he is interested in upending the fragile foundation of the entire system. And in our humble opinion, there's only one protocol that's even remotely close to accomplishing that. 
Related to Josh's point, talking about how this is a billionaire who's seen a lot and studied a lot. You know, it reminded me of Jack Dorsey tweeting months ago that Mm. hyperinflation is coming. This guy runs Block, previously Square, and he's peering into every single transaction that's happening. So he's able to look behind the curtain on what's actually happening in our economy. And he called it months ago before inflation has really ticked up to the eight and a half percent that we're seeing today. Yeah. And he was just ripped apart like a peck of hyenas got at him on Twitter by people in the mainstream economists are all scoffing and you know looking down their nose at him. But you're absolutely right. The guy's been at the forefront of this for years and he's looking at millions of transactions. I think Square or Block has got like 70 million customers. He's got a fairly good sample size here to just peel through and sniff what he's stepping in. To push back a tiny bit, and I may get lambasted here by some hardcore plebs. But we do have to remember, I think the definition of hyperinflation is like 50% month over month. So we're like nowhere even remotely close to the actual textbook definition. I mean, is that theoretically feasible? Yes. But there's an unbelievable diversity of perspective on exactly what the inflationary environment is going to be in the future. I think what most semi-macro knowledgeable individuals agree on is to some extent, basement and inflation are just mathematically guaranteed with where debt levels are at. But in terms of like actual hyperinflation. I mean, we're nowhere close to that, but I don't mean to undermine the significance of the prints coming out. Yeah, no, I agree with you that we're not obviously seeing textbook hyperinflation. This isn't Venezuela, not yet at least. But I think what he was trying to get at with a bit of hyperbole was, you know, this is going to be more significant than people are spouting about. This is going to be a bit more of a needle mover than uh, most mainstream economists are willing to admit or say. Yeah, I think that's what his point was. Agreed. So after Dan Tapiero's point on the 60-40 portfolio, Ricardo couldn't help but jump in and mention that bonds are a terrible investment and that he wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. And I think Ricardo really enjoys leaning into the Bitcoin crowd as he seems to be very active on Twitter and interacting with a lot of the others in the space. And it's just so fascinating to hear this from some of these people because you know I interact with people in the traditional finance world, call it financial advisors. And a lot of them are just still interested in the 60-40 portfolio and aren't really shying away from it. So it's just incredible to see these two completely opposite ends of the spectrum that aren't really willing to budge. And my last comment is what I've really liked about this panel is that these guys are all new outspoken people in the space that I'm aware of, at least. When I listen to a lot of these guys, they understand where the traditional finance world is coming from. And they're up there saying that Bitcoin is a great asymmetric play. And like you guys mentioned, it's the only really play from a cryptocurrency standpoint. And this isn't people on the stage who have always had their identity tied to Bitcoin in some way. Max Kaiser comes to mind. He's been in the space forever. You know, that dude's never going to change his mind on Bitcoin. And these guys are all new. They've been in the traditional finance world and they're allocating real capital. And since they're allocating capital, they're always looking to, you know, just be mindful of where the world is potentially moving towards. Yeah. I think Max Kaiser is a funny one to bring up because he's obviously been right for a long period of time, but the guy, and again, I'm going to reference this and say, I love the guy to death, but he parades around in like orange boxers and like orange kicks with like a mallet. And like, he almost has like a Joker persona, like people on the outside are not looking at Max Kaiser and taking him serious. You know, he has a bit of a clown attitude about everything. Whereas these four billionaires sitting on stage saying Fiat's a giant Ponzi scheme and it's a fraud and they have significant portions of their wealth in it, like that moves the needle for a regular person who wants to start taking this serious. 
Yeah. I want to make one more comment about the risk parity sort of 60-40 discussion. I think you two will agree, but push back if you don't. A very key disclaimer here is time frame because right now the risk off facet of choice is still the US dollar, US treasuries. It's going to be that way for quite some time. Just like liquidity speaks, that's where people are flocking in credit crunches and deleveraging events. Now, obviously we think a lot of these events are going to be rescued by the centralized powers that be. But if you're thinking like on a six month, two year time frame, you're going to be like, well, what are these guys talking about? Like, I would have been safer if I'd stayed in my total bond market fund when things collapsed or if I just stayed in cash or whatever. You know, you can picture those scenarios. And I think this is why it's important to reiterate we're talking on five, 10, 15, 30 year timeframes. At least Josh and I are on our show. We're talking about building long term generational wealth, like through the duration of a career, not on a five year timeline. Now, on our, we had an episode with Dr. Jeff Ross and we kind of discussed and explored the move of Bitcoin, which we think will eventually be from risk on sort of correlated to the NASDAQ, let's say, to eventually risk off. It's got architecture that indicates probably going to eventually settle into being a risk off asset. It's far from that currently. But I'm assuming you guys agree. Like, It's important to delineate time frames on what you're talking about when you're saying fixed income is a bad trade. Yeah, I agree. The one last thing I'd like to leave everyone who's listening with from this talk was Tapiero said toward the end that Bitcoin is bigger than anything he's ever seen or studied. And Bitcoin is truth. And this is a guy who you know has been an institutional investor for a long period of time. He's not just peering into something like this for the first time. For him to say this is the biggest thing he's ever seen in the space, that really should strike a chord if you're paying attention. Well said, both of you. Let's transition to talk about the Samson Mao announcement. He was on the stage just for a few minutes. And first off, I think what he is doing in the space is just absolutely incredible. He's working Mm -hmm. with sovereign countries who are some of the biggest capital allocators of them all. He's played a big role in helping El Salvador get more acquainted with Bitcoin as they are currently working on a billion dollar Bitcoin bond. And at the conference, he announced that Mexico is proposing a bill to make Bitcoin legal tender. You know, not quite as big as the El Salvador announcement last year. It depends on the lens you're looking through. You know, El Salvador actually made it legal tender. So there's a big difference between proposing and actually making it legal tender. And we also found out recently that Samson is leaving his job at Blockstream to focus solely on nation state adoption. So he must be pretty busy talking with nation states, especially in Latin America and helping them learn more about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin can help them. And, you know, this announcement is only a few minutes. He mentioned some things about some smaller countries adopting Bitcoin. But I think the big deal here was him leaving Blockstream, I believe last month and the Mexico announcement of it being proposed to be legal tender. Yeah. So he talked about three different countries. There were three different area. One of them was a city. It was Prospera, Honduras. The other was uh, Madeira, Portugal. And then like you said, it was uh, the potential bill being raised by Senator, I think it's Indira Kempis, but yeah, she's putting forth a bill for that to become legal tender in Mexico, which I mean, that's a huge deal. There's no telling if it'll actually happen or not, but it's just the fact that it's being proposed and talked about and being taken seriously. It's been a crazy couple of years in Bitcoin. That's for sure. I wanted to read these things to be happening. Yeah. This quote by the Mexican Senator really harkens back to some of the the spirit of the Bitcoin human rights discussion. You know, I think of Alex Gladstein and all of his pieces, his new book, Check Your Financial Privilege, Bitcoin empowering the third world, those that are disenfranchised and cut off from the traditional banking system. She has this quote where she says, in Mexico, 67 million people are not included in our financial system. Bitcoin is the solution to that problem. Through financial inclusion and financial education, the people can have a better quality of life. And she thinks Bitcoin is an empowerment tool to accomplish that. 
which is it's really cool to hear. Significant. And I wholeheartedly agree. Bitcoin is the bank for the unbanked, right? You're going to have a massive cohort of people around this globe who are totally cut off from traditional financing. Guess what? They are going to leapfrog. They're never going to have bank accounts as we know them today. They're going to jump straight on to a decentralized, open, censorship-resistant, inherently global monetary network that's 10x better than what we have currently. And it's remarkable to see people like her recognize this and be fighting for it on the political stage. And the more that her constituents digest and understand this, following the incentives and the game theories, pretty inevitable, at least in our mind, where it heads. Absolutely. One of the cool little just about what's going on in Portugal there is there's no taxes on spending Bitcoin and no income taxes. So the only taxes, as far as I understood from that talk, were 5% on corporations. So, I mean, if you have a national, like, sounds like an awesome place to move everything to and take advantage of that tax situation, which is almost none, and spend some of your Bitcoin if you've made some large gains on it. It's, it's sovereign individual thesis playing out in real life. Exactly. Like for the people that sovereign individuals this, are. This arbitrage is amazing. It's happening, you know? Yep. I mean, innovation leads to prosperity. And if you're not bringing in innovation, you're not going to have prosperity. And this is playing out more visibly because this is a money that's less easily controlled by centralized powers, right? So as money moves from the levers of the state to the levers of the individual, once again, this is like a long-term theory of the nation state, but you're going to likely see nation states need to acquiesce more to citizens the way companies do to customers. And we're watching it. I mean, it's not yeah. its not just a theory anymore. We're watching it play out the last couple of years. At least for me, it's happening on the nation state level a lot sooner than I anticipated. The other funny thing, guys, is like people are expecting these, like people were disappointed with the announcement from Mao. Like, especially after the El Salvador thing last year, people were like, this is going to be like Mexico's going all in or some other massive country. And people were like genuinely bummed. And it's like, we've got a country where this is legal tender. We've got provinces with their leaders getting up in front on a conference in Miami saying, come to our location because we're accepting Bitcoin. Gradually, then suddenly we're still in the gradually phase, but we're the crack is widening. We're watching it in real time. Yeah, it is definitely increasing, man. The, the spigot's opening. Well said. Well, let's transition to another group of speakers, Michael Saylor and Kathy Wood. They talked quite a bit about regulations and that kind of ties into the political and sovereign aspects you guys are chatting about. And first off, having these two at the conference is pretty big. They're both really big names in the space. And these are two people that investors are always tuning into to hear what they have to say. The first point that Kathy Wood had was related to the politicians. She mentioned how many politicians are beginning to realize that there are more and more people out there that are becoming single issue voters. And that Mm. single issue is your stance on Bitcoin. So if politicians are pro Bitcoin, they can, you know, pick up a lot of new voters, whether that politicians on the right or the left, because this is a bipartisan issue. So politicians are asking the people what they want as far as Bitcoin regulation goes. And we're seeing more and more pro-Bitcoin regulations coming out. Most notably, I would mention Texas. Texas is bringing in a lot of businesses, especially when it comes to the Bitcoin mining space. And Austin is also a big city when it comes to Bitcoin companies. All of this really brings in additional tax revenue for their state, and it helps stabilize their grid as far as the Bitcoin mining piece goes. So Preston talks about this too a lot of times is how the United States is one country, but there's 50 states in that country that are all competing for these U.S. businesses. So it's really interesting to see that game theory play out just in the U.S. alone. Yeah. On the same note as the politicians, she, Kathy Wood, she mentioned how Yellen is kind of softening her tone towards Bitcoin just in the last week. 
And she believes personally, she said she doesn't have any inside information, but she thinks Gensler has gotten to her and kind of whispered in her ear like, hey, let me help you out. Let me help you understand a little bit more about this because um, I don't want to mischaracterize this. But what she said the other day was this guy named Satoshi you know, came up with this way for people to exchange value without an intermediate, without a middleman or a bank. Her demeanor towards it was, this is an interesting thing that's going on and I'm learning about it. And I think that's compared to the disposition she had towards this a year to two years ago or five years ago in 2017, when she was speaking and some guy was holding a buy Bitcoin sign behind her. Like this is this entirely different world she's operating in as far as I can tell. Oh, completely agree. Her comments blew me away. You know, she's probably getting the canvas ready to paint CBDC on it, but still she's recognizing the innovation And that's a huge step forward and just an indicator that this is not going anywhere. This is not a fad that's going to disappear next week. You've got the head of the SEC and Treasury and every person you can imagine now. We got an executive order from the White House. Like This is not disappearing, uh, whether you want it to do so or not. This commodity security distinction, which you alluded to, Josh, is really significant. And I know there's a lot of hardcore libertarian Bitcoiners that are like, you know, screw regulation. It doesn't matter. This, you know, whatever. I understand that. And I get that disposition, but let's just talk about the potential regulatory framework we're going to see this decade. It's very clear when looking at Gensler and the way this is being tossed around, as you said, Bitcoin is a commodity and the rest of these tokens are going to be fed to the wolves, that being the SEC. And they are, you know, based on the Howey test, I'm no Howey expert here, but it seems quite obvious they're securities. And that distinction is really significant. And it's a very, very big deal for Bitcoin. And it should be on the mind of investors from a risk analysis standpoint. This being a commodity in many ways de-risks it. It's going to be left alone in a way that securities won't be, at least in my opinion. And once again, surprising. I mean, it does appear that Gensler, you know, it's widely known. He taught a course on Bitcoin at MIT, and uh, I think he understands the innovation here. And I think it's his intention, at least within the confines of the current framework and expectation to quote unquote, leave it alone based on today's standards. Yeah. And Saylor referenced the uh, presidential order, which basically was ordering a different, you know, an assortment of different three letter agencies to learn as much as they can about this industry and understand it. But he said there is no outcome other than favorable for Bitcoin at this point. And I think primarily, Dan, like you just said, because uh, Gensler has made it very clear that this is a commodity and that it's, you know, basically outside of their jurisdiction and there's no worry about them trying to clamp down on it in any way, any meaningful way. It's going to be interesting to see when the CFTC really starts making noise on this, because this could go from like, we've long viewed this as like sort of a threat to these agencies, but you could see this becoming like the CFTC's little power baby, like that they now have domain over this huge blooming asset class. And they've been, at least to my knowledge, and I don't know if you guys know more, they've been fairly quiet on this front. I mean, it's obvious that it's going to be in their domain, but they haven't been talking much about it. So it'll be interesting if they ever come out and start getting more vocal. It will be. One other comment I have on this, Kathy Wood said, uh, this was an interesting comment she had, she thinks Bitcoin is going to be successful and appreciate in value whether we see inflation or deflation. And deflation might sound surprising to people, but I think she's talking about in the slightly longer term deflation, which would be Bitcoin's got no counterparty risk. Because one of the largest problems with deflation is that there's a lot of assets that are floating around that are paper that potentially have a cascading counterparty problem. Bitcoin clearly doesn't have that problem. So, I mean, something to mull over and think about like this thing could potentially work just as well for you financially in an inflationary atmosphere or a deflationary atmosphere. And who knows, we might see some combination of stagflation, which is kind of both. 
So you guys uh, hear uh, Sailor's comment? I loved his comments on Merrill Lynch in this uh, talk. He said like yeah. 24 months ago, they were basically like, no, we won't, we won't touch this with a 10 foot pole. And now he's getting email in his inbox from them with analysis on Bitcoin. And this plays into something that Josh and I talk about on our show. We have these four eyes that we go through of at least our exposure to people that work in traditional finance of at first it was idiotic, then it becomes interesting, then eventually it's important and we'll get to a point where it's imperative. I think we're mostly in the interesting phase, fringing on important, but the tune has changed so dramatically from you know Bitcoiners being the biggest buffoons on planet Earth to now every brokerage firm on planet Earth having a new branch that's researching this full time. It's adorable. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. Yeah, pretty incredible stuff. I love the four eyes analogy you guys use and bring up often on your show. And I completely agree that many people, you know, me and you guys probably included, have moved through each of those four eyes. And, you Mm -hmm. know, people also talk about the three touch points where it takes three times for you to hear about Bitcoin to actually start learning about it and, you know, maybe potentially buy some. Before we close out our discussion on Sailor and Kathy, I wanted to pull a quote from Kathy Wood 
as I just thought it was just so interesting that, you know, people might hear a quote like this and just think that it's a big nothing burger. She goes, listen to every word because every word is important. Bitcoin is the first global private. It's open source, but there's no government involved. Digital rules-based monetary system in the history of the world. It is a very big idea. I just thought that quote was so profound, especially with the number of people that just totally ignore this asset. Yeah. And I think she said that she uses that to kind of catch people that are maybe ignoring it. Like here, think about it in this way and there's certain points and she's absolutely right. That nails it. Those That set of outlines the complete idea of what this encompasses, which is something that we just have never seen before and we're unlikely to ever see again. It's a yeah, once that, in a millennium kind of thing. I recommend if you're listening and that went over your head, rewind this episode and go re-listen to that sentence. And I don't mean to sound hubristic here because we we're far from a rival. We're still learning a ton. But if every single word in that sentence doesn't click for you, the implications don't click for you, you need to keep learning until they all click for you because all those things combined are the innovation here. And there's so many mind-blowing things that have coalesced in this protocol. I love how she laid that out. Great sort of headline thesis for what Bitcoin is and why it matters. Absolutely. And if all of that stuff, if nobody heard that, here's the one thing that Kathy Wood said that might catch your interest, which is her price target for Bitcoin by 2030 is $1 million. So that's interesting. Well, I love the way she got there too. Before we Two and a half percent of assets will be allocated to Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. So she's saying, I think something to the effect of two and a half percent of institutional assets will be in this. So I mean, that's a ton of money. I don't mean to undermine that amount of money, but that's totally feasible. And this is why, in our humble opinion, this is the largest addressable market mankind has ever seen. And when you think about the bite that this could take out of a plethora of asset classes, I mean, it makes your head explode, man. I mean, it keeps me up at night thinking about all the use cases that this could absorb and how much capital could flow into this. Scary and exciting stuff. I want to just take one second here. I promise it won't be long to diverge on use cases because I just, I don't know if anyone, this wasn't announced at Bitcoin 2022, but it was just before it. Lightning Labs is working on what's called Taro. It's a piggyback onto Lightning Network, which will allow them to have stable coins running on Lightning. Any kind of asset you can imagine running on Lightning. So you've got an instantly settled, completely bare asset that's settling around the world you know, for less than pennies that completely disintermediates any use for 99% of shit coins at this point. A lot of maxis have been saying this is going to happen, but this is actually happening. This is something they're working on. They're very close to completing. And this is going to change everything in this realm. It is going to just, it's going to be a giant steamroller and it's happening. We would be getting into the weeds here, but to kind of summarize, Josh and I were actually talking about this at work. Anyways, the point we were establishing with each other in the locker room was this is a an altcoin absorber. The, an analogy I drew was like, it's as though right now we have all these people inventing different internets. Like there's the TCP IP has come out and tons of other people are inventing base layer internet protocols. And when you see innovation like this on the base layer of Bitcoin, it is like watching HTTPS or SMTP come on top of TCP IP and the internet protocol stack. Translation, one of these is going to be able to do most, I'll use most use cases and moves forward like this on the Lightning Network are going to absorb an enormous number of altcoin use cases, which is just back to, you know, this is an investment podcast. This is part of the risk profile. Is your altcoin that you're investing in have the potential to be absorbed onto a more secure, more liquid protocol like Bitcoin? In our opinion, most of these use cases are going to get absorbed and innovation like this that just keeps happening year after year is evidence that this is likely to occur as we move into the future. 
Yeah. And it's happening extremely fast. I mean, we'll get to Jack Mahler's. I'm not going to ruin that one already, but yeah, I mean, we're just what he's single-handedly is doing in combination with this and a myriad of other things going on in the space. It is moving at a pace that nothing else in the world besides maybe Elon Musk's rockets are moving. Yeah. A lot of people think innovation will happen linearly and adoption for that matter. And, Mm. you know, this is something that's happening exponentially year after year. So it's pretty incredible to be a part of this movement and, you know, still be early on it. Let's talk Peter Thiel. This was one of the speakers I was most looking forward to, you know, his book, Zero to One, very popular book. And a lot of people know who Peter Thiel is, co-founded PayPal with Elon Musk and the PayPal mafia. So at the beginning of this one, he played this video where it was him speaking in 1999 about how since everyone will eventually have a cell phone, countries won't have control over what money people hold. He was mainly referring to how other countries won't be able to stop their citizens from holding US dollars. And this was in 1999. He was saying this, but today it's really anyone that has a cell phone has access to Bitcoin, the asset. And governments really can't stop it without shutting down the entire internet, which is truly incredible to think about when you have many countries that have hyperinflation, you have censorship and things of that nature. I had an episode with Alex Gladstein where we discussed all these issues and the things Bitcoin is doing for those that need it most, really. And then during... Peter Thiel's speech, he hit on the idea of money being high velocity or low velocity. One example he lays out is gold, which is low velocity as it mainly sits in central bank vaults. While the Visa payment network is efficient at transferring value very quickly, which makes it very high velocity. Then he ties in Bitcoin and Ethereum, saying that Bitcoin is the replacement for gold, while Ethereum is potentially the replacement for Visa if it actually ends up working. And those are his words, not mine. I'm sure a lot of people at the conference would disagree with that conclusion as Bitcoin currently has a lightning network that can be used to transfer value instantly, which you guys just outlined with some of the innovations we're seeing. And that's also with zero fees. So what are your guys' opening thoughts on Peter Thiel's speech? You know, one thing I want to throw in here at the beginning to piggyback on your cell phone comment and sort of his comments back from the late 90s. There's a tweet by Will Clemente that I think is apropos here. He says, we should expect Bitcoin's network effect to expand faster than the internet for one simple reason. The internet spread on analog rails. Bitcoin is spreading on the digital rails of the internet itself. And this is some of what Teal was hinting at. And it actually goes back to the previous segment we just had of exponential adoption because you're building out rail cars on an already existing railroad. You don't have to lay the rail ties. And that's why things are moving so quickly in Bitcoin and why the potential is so dramatic to continue to move forward at this exponential pace because of how widespread internet adoption is. And even is, I mean, I think I'd be talking a little out of turn here. I don't have the research right in front of me, but I think there's some expectations that like the smartphone usage is, especially in the third world is going to like double even the next five to seven years. So the increase of technologies like this are piggybacked on the internet itself, which is extremely entrenched. And that's the implications are dramatic. Uh, One thing I didn't know about PayPal so much, I didn't, I've never really done a deep dive on them. He said that when they started, they had a lot more, a lot greater of a goal initially, him and Musk. He said they wanted to replace the central bank or treasury. They didn't actually know the difference between the two at the time which is hilarious that they founded this company about money and didn't know the difference. Uh, the other thing I wanted to comment on is exactly what you got to Clay at the end there, which was he said Ethereum is like Visa, Bitcoin's like gold. Uh, I don't know what his knowledge base is on you know, what's going on in Lightning, but clearly he doesn't quite understand or hasn't, you know, I don't know. I don't know what his deal is there, but obviously Lightning is going to be far superior to Visa very quickly. 
The, the thing too, and I think we were maybe texting about this with you, Kalei, that from this speech he gave was comparing Bitcoin market cap and equity the last time we had a significant inflation environment. So he had this chart up where he said, there was a period of time, was it in 80? I can't remember, yeah, maybe 1980. It was early 80s, where yeah. Global equity, was it 2.5 trillion? And the market cap of gold, was it 2.5 trillion? And today we sit in an environment where global equity is something like 115 trillion. And if you look at comparable hard money assets, let's call gold 12 trillion. Although I think tradable gold is somewhere between five and seven trillion. You had a trillion dollars of Bitcoin. Let's say we have a sea of five to seven trillion of hard money assets juxtaposed against equities at 115 trillion. In my opinion, it's very clear which direction osmosis is going to move economically, especially in an inflationary environment like we talked about off the front. It seems very plausible that it's going to move towards hard money assets. And our contention is there's none better on planet Earth than Bitcoin. Before I get off this, it does make me think of our discussion with Lawrence Lepard. He did something similar to what Teal did when he was on with us. And he talked about Gold's move from, you know, when we broke the peg in 71, basically that decade going from $35 an ounce to like $700. And he said, essentially at that point, gold itself got to about 7% of global assets, which in today's dollars would be about 35 trillion. He did the same math I just did. Hard money's at five to seven trillion. He thinks this inflationary environment is going to be far more dramatic than what we saw in the 70s, early 80s. So he kind of has the lower bound of hard money assets this decade and maybe the next decade at, you know, we'll call it 5X where it is today. Point is, this is some long-winded elaboration on how we can compare this potential inflationary environment to the last time we were in something similar and the move we saw to hard money, which has not yet occurred in dramatic fashion, which is, I think, extremely bullish for Bitcoin. Yeah. For Bitcoin, hard money. And it reminds me of, uh, I can't remember the bond investor off the top of my head who said this now, but it might've been Paul Tudor Jones, actually. He said, if gold is a, you know, gold's a racehorse, but Bitcoin's a Ferrari, like in this environment, this Ferrari is, uh, is going to move. Uh, the other thing that he said, which I found kind of funny, is that at the end, he, he kind of outlined the enemies of Bitcoin and Buffett was at the top of the list, having called it rat poison. He called him the sociopathic grandpa from Omaha. So <laughs> I thought that was, that was hilarious. He said, Diamond has called it worthless. Jamie Diamond from JP Morgan. Larry Fink from BlackRock, I believe, is pro-blockchain, which is kind of the, you know, assuming that like this whole blockchain, not Bitcoin nonsense. And he called this the geritocracy versus youth movement. Then Bitcoin and crypto, or I guess would be the youth side of that. The geritocracy is these old men that don't understand it, who are against it because of, you know, they have interests against it. Warren Buffett owns a whole bunch of other uh, financial assets that are giving him the inclination to be against something that would destroy those things. So it's pretty obvious that his incentives are against Bitcoin. This is a scathing comment on Buffett. TIP could be in uh, Buffett's crosshairs here. I mean, it's like TIP network is like Buffett gone Bitcoin right now. You know what I mean? Like you've got all these value investors who met at a Berkshire, you know, what is it? Preston and Stig met at a Berkshire meeting, right? Yeah, I think so. uh, Man, everything's going bright orange over there. We need to bring Buffett on the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, is it just an age thing with Buffett? Like what's your take, Clay, on that? Well, I think there's a number of things at play here. One, you know, Buffett's been known for saying that technology or certain things are in the too hard pile. So, you know, Buffett's widely known for staying invested in his circle of competence. He doesn't really study macro. Who knows how much he's actually studied macro or how much he's actually studied 
Bitcoin, hard money. You know, for a while back, a year or two ago, he owned a little bit of gold miners, but I'm pretty sure he ended up selling that. So he's a long-term equity value investor. And like Peter Thiel mentioned on the stage, he's talking his book. He knows that if all this money were to flow to gold or Bitcoin, whatever the hard money asset is, that it would not be good for his equity portfolio. And, you know, we saw it in the 1940s and the 1970s. We saw high inflation and deleveraging in the system. That would be a very bad decade for equities. You guys have studied Dalio and studied the long-term debt cycles. This cycle could be much, much worse than the 1940s and 1970s. Like, what Ricardo was talking about with potential hyperinflationary scenarios where, you know, all the leverage just gets completely wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here's right. the other Buffett comment I have. And I'm no Buffett historian here, but if I remember correctly, Warren did sit out most of the dot com boom and bust, right? So he sat around in his candy equities while the system ballooned up and then imploded. And I think that he thinks he's looking at the same thing. Where I disagree, and the, the main piece that I believe he's missing, is he is looking at Bitcoin through the lens of a tech stock instead of viewing it as a foil to the entire foundation of the global monetary system, right? And he... I don't know if it, how much time he's taken, but it's it's a different asset than he's aware of. And like the ironic thing is, I kind of view being Bitcoin focused or Bitcoin only as like similar to a Buffett perspective. Like we're waiting out altcoin mania because it's devoid of fundamentals, hanging in the value investment, right? That is Bitcoin. But back to like Buffett's confusion, I think he's looking, I think he thinks he's looking at the same thing he saw in 1999 that he thinks is going to implode, but he's made one key miscalculation. And that's the real problem that Bitcoin is solving at the base. And that yeah. that mistake he's making is in part because of a potentially a lack of macro interest. Just a thought. Yeah, maybe. I also think that he's just, I mean, the guy was over 70 years old, even in the dot-com era. I think that he's just in very comfortable in the water he swims in and he's not going to be jumping into the other stream. You know, there's salmon are jumping upstream and he's, he's not following, you know, he's going to go drop his eggs over in the calm stream that he's in. Yeah. Another comment I'd like to add is I'm pretty sure he's been on the record for saying that the businesses he owns, they're going to transact in whatever currency everyone's using. So Mm. a lot of the companies he owns and operates are essentials to the economy. Call it insurance, railroads, utilities. These are not going anywhere, whatever happens with the currency. And you got to remember this guy's his time horizon is practically forever. I mean, he's looking for companies that are going to be around for a very long time. They're kicking off these free cash flows. So he knows that even in this kind of scenario, obviously he's not positioned for that, ideally for that transition to happen, but it's not like he's going to get totally wiped out. And it reminds me of the kind of the tortoise and the hare analogy. You Mm -hmm. know, people were calling Buffett, his methods are dead. Like his time is gone while Kathy Woods, Ark Invest is going to the moon. Everyone's flocking to her fund. Well, now you look back and compare Berkshire to Ark over the last two or three years. Berkshire's actually outperformed it. It depends on the time frame you're looking at probably, but ARC has just come way back with interest rates moving back up. And, you know, even Buffett, after people have said, yeah, his time is gone, he's lost it, you know, he even outperformed ARC over the last few years. So I think that's also worth mentioning. And, you know, just to give some credit to Buffett. Let's transition again. Do you guys want to cover what Jack Maller's announcement was at the conference? Yeah, absolutely. Give it a quick, like, couple minute introduction to what Lightning Network is. 
So basically Lightning Network uses the Bitcoin's blockchain base layer for security. So uh, there would be a transaction that happens on the Bitcoin blockchain that would lock those coins into a wallet. Now from that time, they're enabled on the Lightning Network. So there's no credit going on here at all. This is all still a bearer asset. So say one Bitcoin is locked in a specific wallet. Now that one Bitcoin is enabled on Lightning and there's another set of nodes that can now transact through channels back and forth to, together. Let's say Dan and I each have a node. We open a Lightning channel between each other. Now Dan and I can transact unlimited amount of times instantaneously that one Bitcoin balance between ourselves. So I can send Dan half a Bitcoin. He can send it back as many times as we want. No transaction fees because all of this is being done off chain. So the thing that this improves on is speed, number one. Number two, transaction fees are negligible to almost zero. They're less than a penny. And so what happens is this is a network of multiple nodes. So Dan and I, and say, I think right now there's 16,000 lightning nodes. So they're routed through nodes. So if Clay wants to receive a transaction from me and Dan's node is connected to Clay's node, my transaction goes to Dan and then to Clay. And it could go through, say, 25, 30 of these nodes in order to get to the place it's going. The whole time this is happening, nothing's happening on the Bitcoin blockchain. All of this is completely off chain, which is the reason it can be happening so fast. Yeah. So like to draw an analogy, the bar tab analogy would be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say like Bitcoin has a scaling issue, right? The base chain is settling every 10 minutes. I think the throughput something like five transactions a second. Visa is doing thousands. So lightning's created. And and uh, by the way, there's, it's not like we're married to lightning. There's other second layer protocols that could be built, but this is basically enabling more throughput. It's the scalability solution to a very secure, but limited base chain. And the thing Josh hinted at, a common analogy in Lightning is it's like opening a bar tab and then opening and settling the bar tab, which is actually this two of two multi-sig transaction that is a, the Lightning network. That is, those are base layer Bitcoin transactions. But what Mallers is doing, to bring this back to this discussion, he runs a company called Strike that's enabled on the Lightning network. And where this really gets pretty frisky and exciting is this is when we see multiple use cases coming together. And this is one of the most fascinating things about Bitcoin. You come in with one lens or perspective, something grabs you, that's store value or whatever. It, you know, Store value is a common one. Maybe it's decentralization, censorship or resistance, whatever. And then you realize like, oh no, this monetary network is going to do it all. And what Lightning ends up kind of signaling is that, hey, this is more than just a store value protocol. This is also going to work for medium of exchange because Lightning theoretically has unlimited throughput if enough liquidity and nodes are available. Right. So it's pretty remarkable what's happening and back to the speed, which we've hinted at a number of times in this episode. I mean, Strike is moving at a torrid pace. Some of the announcements that went down, like what is it? It's NCR, right? That's the payment processor. Yeah. Cash apps using it, Shopify is using it. You're just Black starting work. Blackhawk network. Yeah. So NCR they makes one in six payment terminals in the world. So there's a one in six chance that your lightning payment is gonna work at whatever merchant you're at. It basically sorry to just take it right from you, Dan. But what this does is it completely disintermediates Visa mm. altogether. It creates a way for transactions to happen so that all of the middlemen are completely cut out. That two and a half to three percent fee that every merchant is paying to Visa or MasterCard or Discover, it's now zero. So the incentive here now is if I'm a merchant and I'm watching inflation numbers go up, I'm getting squeezed on both ends. The customers don't want to pay more. My suppliers are charging me more. I've got to find some way to maintain my margins. And this is the lowest hanging fruit there is. I can just simply start using this new payment network and I can recoup 3% of these transactions that... And so I own a small business on the side. There's a significant amount of money 
that we bleed every year paying two to three percent to you know visa it's a lot of money and i absolutely want to make sure i can figure out how to make this work because i'd rather not see five figures just not disappear every month to or every year to visa once again there's a lot of others follow the incentives. Like what the beauty of this talk that Mallers gave was he basically went through the history of credit card processing. He went back to like the 1940s with credit cards and basically said the rails of the ways in which money move in the credit card system have not changed since like, I think he said like 1949. The consumer facing apps have changed dramatically. And we'll get to that in a second, but the actual rails, the intermediaries, the way money's moving, the fees that are being collected haven't been innovated on since the mid 20th century. And let's talk about disintermediation. You have in a credit card transaction, you've got the consumer, you have the merchant, you have the consumer's bank, you have the merchant's bank, and then you have a credit card processing company, and then a credit card company. You have all these intermediaries. This is a protocol that enables, this is back to, I've got the white paper back up here. This is a peer-to-peer monetary network. This is in the title of what Bitcoin is. We get back to peer-to-peer payments with Lightning, where I as the merchant and Josh as the consumer can have a transaction and get rid of, I mean, we start doing the math here. You're talking two to 3% savings on every single transaction on planet Earth. The incentives are there. And here's where people get confused. The application layer, the consumer layer, right? The cash app that you're using, the Venmo that you're using, the payment processor, the point of sale you're using, none of that needs to change. They can integrate with Lightning Network. The other component that has to be identified is the distinction between Bitcoin the asset and Bitcoin the network. You do not need to transact in Bitcoin. You can have a company like Strike take your euros, convert them into Bitcoin, and send US dollars across the country. So you put euros in, somebody gets USD out. You don't even know that you're using the Bitcoin protocol. This is bad. Let's draw another internet analogy here. We're on, what are we on, Skype? None of us have any clue what part of the internet protocol stack these data packets are traveling through, right? We're just talking and there's video here. Just works. This is how Bitcoin's going to work in the monetary future. You're going to have people moving fiat currencies, maybe CBDCs, stable coins, who knows what it's going to be. They're going to be using the most secure, stable monetary protocol on planet Earth to move those units, those data packets back and forth. Yep. And they may not even know that Bitcoin's involved. This is it's where even, it's taken over, man. I don't know what to tell yeah. you. So the other thing that he said, which is really cool. So Visa, MasterCard, Discover, those are closed networks. If you want to use Visa, you got to get Visa's permission. You've got to have Visa's say so, or you know, MasterCard or Discover. With this, this is an open network. There's no coming to ask mother, may I? If you know how to code or you can find someone who does, you can plug into this and you can make whatever app you want. Do you want to compete with Strike and make a new Strike you think can be better? You can immediately do it. There are no gatekeepers. And that is just such a different world than people are used to in the world of finance. You don't have to go ask a government institution. You don't have to go get someone's permission in any capacity. You can just build on an open source network called Lightning. And oh, one other thing I want to add about Lightning before we move off topic, I don't think people understand the scale at which this thing can move. Visa does at the maximum 65,000 transactions per second, which is a lot. Theoretically and practically, Lightning can do 1 million transactions per second. So I mean, we're talking about a 15x increase on the maximum amount of transactions that Visa ever does. So there's some room for uh, for massive scaling here. And we're also talking about immediate cash finality. I mean, a, a right. typical credit card system, right. there's, a de- there's a whole debt layer, folks, that's built on this system. These things are settling two to 15 days after your transaction. On the Lightning Network, we're talking about immediate cash finality, 
Another thing we have to introduce, and I, I think this is where the Lightning Network really clicked for me practically, was just the use cases. And there, there's so many you can think of, but one very practical one is Podcast 2.0. We're on it. It's a new way that you can podcast and get revenue directly from listeners where people can stream you, I mean, fractions of a cent, right? They can send you five Satoshis, you know, for a comment in the podcast that they enjoy, right? Streamed over the Lightning Network. It potentially completely redefines the way content creators are going to get paid. That's one example. Another is like the way you pay employees. Like there's already things being built out. I think Strike is involved in some of this where you can like pay employees by the second or by the minute. <laughs> Right. I can so imagine what the, a nightmare the accounting would be for that. We're talking about streaming money here, though. This is yeah, money cool. that's going to be streamed over the internet. We're not going to live in a future where you're getting paid every two weeks, right? Where is it in my bank account? That's, that's going to cease to exist as money is moved natively to the internet. And this is one of the key differences of like, this is a, maybe a, a blunt way of describing it, but we're on an analog monetary system that's been uploaded to the internet. The Bitcoin protocol and the stack that's going to be built on top of it is digital native. native to the internet. And there's a huge difference there. And we're seeing that manifest in the lightning network. Absolutely. I hear all this and all I can think about is the Trojan horse. You know, you have costs going from 3% to near zero. You have instant finality. You have the decentralized piece of it. Everything you guys outlined, I, it just screams Trojan horse in my head. So what are the announcements that Jack Mallers made in relation to the uh, partnerships he set up for strike? He had um, basically Shopify, they partnered with NCR, which is a huge payment processing network, and they create one out of six terminals and then partnerships with the Blackhawk network. And that in itself is, you know, covers a wide swath of the transactions. He said, you know, Walmart was on the list, Walgreens, McDonald's, Sparrow, Chipotle. And there was a long list of like companies that will almost immediately be enabled for you to just walk in and use a lightning wallet, pay with a QR code, have your money, you know, switched into Bitcoin at the speed of light over to the other guy's terminal, flip back into dollars and on you go. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. 
Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I have questions for you guys related to the Lightning Network. I often think, okay, how scalable is it? Is it possible today for Amazon to plug their company into Lightning and start seeing some of these cost savings? Or does Lightning itself need to scale with people depositing Bitcoin into payment channels and more development happening on the back end? But one thing about Lightning that I think maybe is is confusing for people, it doesn't matter how many channels are on there. So I was just looking at this block clock I have behind me. One of the metrics it'll display is how many Lightning nodes are in the network right now. And just earlier today, it was 16,500. So what that is, is 16,500 nodes that have channels set up in between each other. Giant, if you can imagine in your head, a giant web of points, each one connecting to the next, kind of like the internet, you know, it's the same thing. But the amount of channels and number of nodes doesn't matter. What matters is, is that one node can speak to another that's five hops or 10 hops or 50 hops away. So right now, to my understanding, again, I'm a caveat with that because I'm not a computer engineer. This thing can do a million transactions per second. So there's absolutely nothing keeping Amazon from using this. This could absolutely scale right now to fully do every single transaction that they uh, accomplish in a single day. And as far as I understand, the rest of the world as well. It is still a beta project. So, I mean, there are still some kinks to be kicked out of it, but I've not heard of anyone not being able to establish or, or send a transaction in quite a long time. And the only issue that people could run into at this point is simply liquidity issues. So large transactions, something in the order of like $5,000 to $10,000 or higher, you might not be able to send it through because if the channel liquidity is not high enough, it's simply not going to go. So with those larger payments, you just have to go back to the Bitcoin blockchain for those. Yeah. I, th- I was just going to say, Josh nailed it. Liquidity, based on my understanding, is one of the primary hangups. And like I said, we're throwing in disclaimer after disclaimer, but we're not experts. I mean, we do both run lightning nodes. We've both messed with liquidity on the lightning network. I think I've heard Preston Pish mention this, like using lightning, running a node and actually like working on inbound liquidity and messing with these channels really helped click for me how this thing works. I would say, first off, it's not all that intuitive, especially for tech dunces like us. It's actually quite complex. And it does lead me to believe you're going to have primary players like Strike who are managing liquidity in this space or smart node operators who there is an opportunity there, I think, on routing fees on Lightning, even though they're infinitesimal. If you have enough throughput, I think there is some revenue to be generated there in a totally secure, risk-free fashion. 
but it is just a function of liquidity. Like it's exponentially increasing, but there's not a ton of liquidity locked up on the Lightning Network. But that's like 3,600 Bitcoins right now, which is actually quite a lot. But yeah. the problem is not the total amount of liquidity locked up. What the problem is, is like it's always the weakest link in the chain. So if your transaction's going just fine, it's moving along through five different nodes and then it hits a node where suddenly there's a dead end and there's only one Bitcoin of liquidity left and your transaction's more than that, it stops there and it fails. Next question. So the liquidity piece might be an issue. Is there an incentive for more liquidity to be placed on the Lightning Network? Is it just a matter of strike filling in the gap if it needs to be filled in? Or what do you guys think about that? Let me chime in here. So my thought on this, and tell me if either of you disagree. So the motivation to lock up liquidity is the motivation to use Lightning. So it's like consumers demand it and merchants see the benefit. So we talked about this earlier, right? Disintermediating all these fee collectors saying, hey, this is a secure, instantaneous, immediately cash final global monetary network we want to be part of. We're a large corporation or a large merchant. We want to use Lightning Network, so we're willing to lock up liquidity. And there's, they're not losing anything there, right? They're, right. There's another function of understanding Lightning. It's not like they're giving money away. They can extract their money at any time. They're just inserting liquidity so that their merchants can use this new monetary network. So for me, I mean, there are ways to make money on Lightning through routing fees and other things, but the primary motivation to onboard is the motivation to use this new frictionless monetary network that is Lightning and Bitcoin. Yeah. And as this happens, the interesting thing about it is this is not a credit system. This is a bearer asset system. So this requires the lockup of more and more Bitcoin over longer periods of time while simultaneously increasing demand. Because as the Lightning Network gets more useful, demand will inevitably rise. And you're you're simultaneously locking up assets while increasing demand. Like It's just almost like a supercharged way to increase the value of Bitcoin. Makes an already scarce protocol that much more scarce. Incredible. Thank you for laying out the Lightning Network. I am definitely new to that piece, and I think the listeners will really enjoy that too. Let's talk about another panel, and that's with TIP's very own Trey Lockerbie and Preston Pish, as well as Dr. Jeff Ross, Jeff Booth, and Mark Moss. Unfortunately, they got cut a bit short. It was only about 20 or 25 minutes, but there were some good pieces of information I thought out of this one. And this was them discussing the macroeconomic landscape. Macro is something that a lot of people in the space like to talk about with inflation running hot and the Fed raising rates. This leads to headwinds for many asset classes, I would say, including Bitcoin in the short run, at least. Trey opened it up asking Dr. Jeff Ross why Bitcoin is trading with high correlation to the stock market. He essentially said that the market treats Bitcoin like risk on asset, similar to stocks. So if investors are wanting to flock to safety, they're going to want the USD. But all the guys on the stage probably believe that the USD is going to perform miserably over the next decade relative to Bitcoin. So any pullback we see in 2022 is going to be very short term as the rapid adoption of Bitcoin continues. A lot of people who own Bitcoin get that. And that's why... uh, Will Clemente posted the statistics that 63% of Bitcoin has not moved over the past year. And that just tells you how many people understand that this is a long-term investment and should be treated like a savings account is something that Dr. Jeff mentioned in relation to Bitcoin. I think we need the humility as Bitcoiners to recognize that, like, first off, volatility is a manifestation of uncertainty. And I think Ross said something else to the effect of like, the people at this conference are not the market makers in Bitcoin. And that has changed a lot recently. Like there are for a hardcore, you know, five to seven year pleb, 
like the institutional money coming in has totally changed the landscape. And you have to remember, like these allocators are feeling the pressure because the coin is flashing brighter orange. You're seeing Super Bowl commercials. Millennials are hysterical. All this, you know, there's there's so much noise in this space. It's crazy. Even having been in this for a little less than five years, just where we are today compared to when Josh and I first got interested in this. But these massive institutional players who are just at the very, very beginning stage of allocating, but they are currently allocating. They don't fully understand what they're involved in. This is still a tiny market cap, which it is in the grand scheme of things in their mind. And so it's totally understandable that this is going to be linked in their portfolios to risk on assets. Another thing to consider is like their portfolios, although they're the experts, they do reflect the preferences of their constituents. And on a global scale, like people don't understand what this asset is yet. My point I'm making is I think we're a long way from this decoupling. I think we will decouple from risk on assets, but I think it could be a long way off because I think until institutions really understand and big money really understands what it's invested in, this is going to be in the risk on bucket for a long time, even though architecturally and fundamentally, it's designed to be a risk off asset. I think we should all hope that it remains in that bucket for quite a long time because the way I view it, the only way that this turns into a very quick situation where trillions of dollars are pouring into Bitcoin out of the bond market and all these other risk off quality assets at this point, at least how people view them. The only way that happens is if stuff really hit the fan in a major way. And I don't think any of us want to see that happen. We'd prefer to see this happen in a more orderly fashion. I think we all believe that this is probably going to happen in the longer term, 10 to 20 years. This just makes me think of the conversation we had with Lawrence Lepard, where he said, and the conversation he had with Preston, which he basically said, this is like a two to five year thing. That means that some bad things are going to happen in the very near term. In order for it to happen that quickly, some really crazy stuff has to happen. So let's all hope and be optimistic that this happens in more like a 10 to 20 year time frame in a more orderly transition. And everyone can kind of, like we've kind of said before, build a new house on the old foundation without yeah, letting we- this thing collapse. We talk on our show quite a bit about just be careful what you wish for. Like it's cool to sit around and say the whole system is falling apart, but that's not fun for humanity. That's probably not good for a lot of even your inner circle. Like in my life, most of those that I love and care for aren't by my lens properly protected against a really fragile system. So I do really appreciate like the booths, the Jeff booths, the Greg Fosses. I mean, Pish talks about this a lot too of like, let's hope not. Let's hope that we can have this new system be built alongside the old and we can kind of slowly move from one to the other because I think that would be a net positive for human thriving. I think you need to be ready for it not to work that way. And when you look through uh, monetary history, these things do often have a tendency to happen pretty violently and abruptly. So be prepared. But I think I would encourage people to be philanthropic and benevolent in the way that they think about this happening instead of just being like, I got mine. So screw everybody else. You know, That's not a good way to to look at the rest of mankind as we make a transition out of what's a pretty precarious predicament. Yeah. To follow up on that, you said, be careful what you wish for. And that reminds me of Jordan Peterson. He was another speaker at the event. He was hitting hard on, you know, a lot of people think Bitcoin's just going to be this savior to everything in our lives and everything's just going to be great once Bitcoin is the base monetary standard. And, you know, he really emphasized that we should be cautious and Bitcoiners might be right about many of the good things that it's going to bring, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to come with unintended consequences. So 
I think it's important just to stay humble. I love what you guys are doing with your podcast and trying to educate people and just trying to bring it down to just your everyday person. You guys are firefighters. You're talking to everyone at your firehouse. So yeah, I completely agree with everything you said, Dan. And I think that part really uh, hit a chord with me. I do love what Peterson said there. Like he made this other comment, something to the effect of like when paradigm shifting discoveries happen, they rarely go in the direction we anticipate. I mean, look at how most people perceive the internet early on and look at what it's become. I do think Bitcoin is designed, you could say, with mankind in mind, right? And I think it, it based on the way I size it up, it's pushing things in a positive direction. But we need to have the humility to understand, A, we don't fully understand Bitcoin whatsoever. There's still so much to learn, even for people that have spent thousands of hours studying it. B, to try to transpose that new discovery on all the things that are other discoveries that are going to happen, the trajectory of mankind. There's a lot of unknowns and we do need to keep our eyes and ears open. If you're just expecting this thing's perfect, it's always going to be perfect. That's a troublesome, dogmatic viewpoint. And uh, nothing should be above scrutiny, you know, Bitcoin included. So I, I did love kind of where that challenge that Peterson presented at the conference. Yeah. I was always thinking about the unknown unknowns. Something that, you know, in essence, humility, it's understanding that I'm smart enough to know that I don't know everything. And therefore, there are tons and tons of consequences to the things I don't know that could potentially trip me up. That's the kind of humility I love out of Peterson. Clay, the one other thing I wanted to say from this macro panel, like my highlight quote, Pish said, when you're looking at a protocol, is it going to be decentralized in 20 years? And this really is the crux of the biscuit. Like the protocol that you're investing in, is it going to stay that way? Does it have the architecture to survive institutional adoption, nation state onslaught, yada, da, da, da. And, you know, back to what we covered earlier on, like in our viewpoints, Josh and myself think there's really only one protocol that shows the potential to withstand what we perceive as viable risks. But I just loved kind of pushing that time frame out that far. And I think that that's a, maybe the most important question you could be asking in all of crypto right now. Yeah. And Preston's advice was simply buy Bitcoin and fall asleep for five years. I mean, that basically is it. That's all you have to worry about. Just do that and forget about it. Don't trade it. Don't try to get cute. Just sit on it. Stop listening to and, our shows. Turn them yeah, off. Just don't buy lever Bitcoin it either. Fall asleep. Don't lever it. It's, uh, it's painful. Let's see. Should we cover the macro panel a little bit more? Or what do you guys think? It is kind of a shame that they got cut short, to be honest with you, because there was some... Mark Moss said some really good stuff too. He actually hit some on like the Bitcoin of all things. Like Moss said, he spent some time unpacking, like we've known it is store of value, but it could enter that medium of exchange realm. And we've explored that some throughout this episode already. But like this is, I think, what really sends people down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. When you see the elephant from one direction and then you move the other direction and you start to kind of piece together what this thing is. And I mean, as we've already covered, like this is how the internet came to fruition, right? The first application for everybody was email. And then next thing you know, now it's just doing everything. And the internet is subsuming all of information globally. And so the one thing I really like about Mark Moss is he's very multifaceted and interdisciplinary in the way he thinks. And he brings in both from a monetary history and just history perspective, but also currently contemplating like the interplay of all these different dynamics. And I think that is like the ignition for the Bitcoin bomb, right? Like you've got store of value here, medium of exchange here, censorship resistance, and you're combining all these things and realizing just the wide swathing implications of this protocol on so many different spectrums of the ways human beings exchange value. And that was one point Mark made in there. 
Another thing related to the macro panel and your comments right now on the internet, you know, we've used the US dollar since 1971, since it was, you know, depegged from gold. And it's pretty insane to think about how revolutionary the internet was and how far it's come since 1999, 2000, whatever year you want to call it. And we're 20 plus years into this internet movement and we're still using the US dollar. And that's where Jeff Booth kind of comes <laughs> in. Jeff is always hitting on this fact that technology is deflationary. The internet is massively deflationary, which means it lowers costs and brings abundance to everybody. But the conundrum we're in is that our current system requires growth and inflation and prices across the board. So to offset that, we've seen massive massive increases in the debt levels, debt levels of the government, of consumers. You see uh, all these headlines, how credit card debt, real estate debt, any kind of debt, it's hitting new all-time highs. And you know, it's just something that continues to blow my mind. And Jeff mentioned how he invests in technology companies and he only invests in the companies that are bringing abundance to everyone and the companies that are lowering costs for everyone. And you have these two colliding forces that are constantly fighting each other. You know, this force is fighting each other. It's happening at an increasing rate of change. And it yeah. just seems like it's not going to end well unless we have some sort of financial system to transition to over time because in the end, technology is an unstoppable force. And that's me just paraphrasing many of the teachings I've learned from <clears throat> Jeff Booth and none of it's really my own original thoughts. So just incredible things that Jeff Booth has been uh, teaching you know, everyone in the Bitcoin space. It's kind of hilarious to when you read his book and you understand the deflationary inherency of technology and you look around and you say, the government has to be so flagrant and so gluttonous with its spending to outdo this ridiculous amount of technological innovation that all these private businesses are accomplishing that they can manage to still just bludgeon deflation by being you know just so aggrandizing with printing money in every turn. In the last year, well, 2020 was the most ridiculous overstep of that we've seen between three and four trillion dollars just getting tossed into the giant hog trough for everybody. And now we're seeing the inevitable occurrence of what happens. It's, this is going to cause inflation in a very meaningful way for probably quite some time that we may not have even seen the top of yet. Basically, what I'm saying is just a comment on like this, the gluttony is so over the top in the government printing money that they're able to counteract this deflation. And then on top of that, pour on an extra helping of inflation for all of us. What Booth does for me, gentlemen, is this. like His book, The Price of Tomorrow, and, and a lot of other thinkers drive you back to like, why is leverage where it's at? So this is like an exercise I've gone through. So we're at this point, it's really popular in the Bitcoin space to talk about the end of a long-term debt cycle and all this money printer go burr and all this monetary and fiscal policy. Like, Why are we here fundamentally? And Booth got into this and I'll get to his quote in a second, but basically he works through like, as economies of scale grew inherently global and demands on the velocity of money increased, we had to move away from a hard money standard. Like We had to innovate. There needed to be a new monetary technology. And so we moved to notes backed by hard money, which moved us into a credit-based system, which centralized control of the monetary system, which enabled manipulation of money, right? This is back to like first principles of like, why do people have control of the money? It's because the velocity of money globally necessitated a new monetary technology. So he has this quote that this was like the standout quote for me of the entire conference. I tweeted it out. He said, the technology of Bitcoin allows you to build a system peer to peer that doesn't require debt for velocity of money. 
And then he followed it up by saying like, this is the most important part of Bitcoin. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Why do we have a credit-based system at the base layer of money? It's because of the limitations on velocity. Bitcoin brings back hardness and enables velocity. And its yeah. implications are just, they're hard to conceptualize. But once you get there, and Booth has a unique way of like hammering that home. You did a really good job of explaining that because I don't think I really appreciated how incredibly important that was until maybe just right now when you said that again and when you went through that whole thing that is really really huge that's a profound statement it really is yeah that quote is that's in the uh like a top 10 bitcoin quote for me jeff booth is a sneaky genius like he's so soft-spoken and so just mellow that you almost are like uh, you just don't appreciate the genius he has until you really dig deep into it read his book and and listen very carefully to what he has to say And the thing I love about his book is like The Price of Tomorrow, I think uses the word Bitcoin once. He has a follow-up article. If you do read The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth, you have to read his article, The Greatest Game, which is... I've even heard him admit like this is basically the last chapter to the book as he's come to understand Bitcoin as the transition or the solution out of the inflationary predicament we're in. But those are must-reads. It's a quick read too. The Price of Tomorrow is like a really profound but fast book. I love it. Well, do you guys have any closing thoughts or anything else you guys wanted to cover in regards to the conference? I have a couple of quotes from Jordan Peterson's talk that I thought were, I mean, everything Jordan Peterson says is awesome, but this is just a couple of things. One of the fundamental axioms of a free market is that the only way to properly compute the horizon of the future is by sampling and perhaps summing the free choices of a multitude of free agents. And he was going on a, you know, about why capitalism is superior to socialism. And I think he really struck the heart of the matter, which is what capitalism is inherently is a decentralized computer of, you know, hundreds of millions of minds, all making independent decisions with what's best for themselves, communicating those prices again, decentralized in a decentralized fashion to everybody else. And those cascading price signals through the system allow everybody to understand what value is, where, and why, and to operate with rationality. And that's why capitalism works so well and why centralized control inevitably fails because there is no single entity or person that has enough knowledge, enough information to coalesce all of it into a better system than capitalism, just because one single mind or a group of minds can't be smarter than literally everybody else in the world. I think that was an important one. I think my kind of closing remarks on the conference are, we often close guest appearances or shows this way, like don't trust any of these people we've just mentioned. Don't trust us, including me. Don't definitely trust not Dan. Seriously, go do your own homework. We're just a couple of firefighter clowns that are regurgitating <laughs> information. Like, study for yourself. That is the whole ethos of Bitcoin. Like don't trust verify. And I think one one of the awesome components of this conference is like, it's so readily apparent there's no heroes. Like we had Kevin O'Leary get up on stage and then following like on the analyst desk, I think it was like Marty Bent, Guy Swan. I think Mark Moss was on there and they were like tearing Kevin O'Leary apart. You have this like massive A-list influencer that just got on stage and was like touting Bitcoin and they just proceed to tear them apart on the analyst stage. Like that is frustrating as that can be for people. Like that is the ethos of Bitcoin. It's like, go learn for yourself, study, learn these concepts, make your own decisions. So yeah, do it. Go do that homework. Don't trust what we're saying. Podcasts are great, but you got to read yeah. books. Go beyond just Bitcoin books too. Like if all you're ever reading is authors writing about Bitcoin, you're definitely in the middle of a bubble group think, expand, never stop learning.
Well said. And if you were looking for resources, our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io, we've got a, a spot for you know a bunch of resources that you can find and follow depending on how much time you have. We've got kind of disseminated into different periods of time for how much you want to spend learning about Bitcoin. Fantastic. Well, it was a pleasure doing this episode with you guys. There's no way we could have covered a lot of the content that happened at the conference, but hopefully we hit some of the highlights. Josh, it was fantastic meeting you there. Dan, I'll have to check it. See you down in Miami next year, but it was just such a good time down there. And I'm really glad I had the opportunity to meet you, Josh, and many others in the space and uh, can't wait for next year. So thank you guys for joining me. Definitely mutual, Clay. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.